Welcome back to another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. I'm your host, Paul Randack, and today, coming from, I can't believe I'm going to say this, beautiful downtown, <laughs> northwest Portland, um, drove here uh, three days ago um, and barely made it coming over the pass in a wicked, that's the word I'm going to use, wicked snowstorm. Um, a little PTSD from that travel, um, <laughs> but made it here to be with my son, John Randack. Um, and, hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> hello, hello. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus, and what a perfect place to be having this today. The weather here is remarkable. It did, it did rain pretty much solid the first two days, mm-hmm. and I think for about a week before I even showed up or two, right? That's right. It was just uh, a mess. But these last two days have just been incredible. And this morning, I barely see, at least from my vantage, we're looking out Johnny's beautiful windows here um, up on the side of this hill, and I don't even see a cloud. I don't see a cloud either. It's incredible. Just a typical day in January in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> Not. <laughs> Yeah. All right, so um, we're going to talk a little bit about Portland to start out, because um, this really is a remarkable city and a remarkable town, um, and it has a remarkable energy. And every time I come back here, I, I kind of get that feeling like, you know, why why aren't I living here kind of thing? I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, about me or... About you. Oh, oh thank yeah, you. Well, you, you never know. The, uh, the, the Randack family may be, may be having some... Uh, replants, I guess you'd call it. I'm slowly doing inception on you <laughs> over the years, trying to get you to move up here. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I'm all for that, too. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about Portland and and, and what why you came here and what was important to you. Because when you moved out of Utah, this is the first place you came, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the story of why I came to Portland is way less interesting than I think why I stayed. Um, I... <clears throat> left Salt Lake, I think the reason that a lot of people do is that I just felt a little stifled. I felt like I'd hit a bit of a ceiling occupationally, personally, emotionally. Um, just really slowed down and, and yeah, I just felt stuck. And um, my best friend had moved to San Francisco, so he had made the trek to the kind of northwest part of the country. And um, I was actually supposed to move to San Francisco with him, and uh, that ended up not working out. And Susan, my sister, had been to Portland, and I was asking her about it, and she said, oh, yeah, I think you'd really love it there. She told me about, I was drinking back then, and she told me about all the beer and how they have all these festivals. (laughs) She's like, you're going to love it. And so very spontaneously, I got online, and I found an apartment, and I had it all booked before I even came up here. I mean, I knew nothing about Portland other than that my sister had been to a beer garden on the waterfront at one point, (laughs) and she's... They said, they gave you these little wristbands. You can drink as much as you want. Oh, that's and, right. Um, you had not been here. No, I'd never been here I, before. I forgot that part. Yeah. And so I I just had hoped that um, a fresh start would give me an opportunity to sort of grow a little bit and that I might leave behind some of the... I mean, what I would later to qualify as suffering, you know, I, I think I felt stuck. Stuck is the word I would have used back then. Um, but I, I think I was really suffering. And so I picked up and left. And the first little while here was kind of uncomfortable and awkward. Um, but eventually what I found was that I could really, really be myself here. 
Um, and no matter who you are or what you do or what you're into, I mean, there is a, a, a shape of person just waiting for you to fill for anyone who wants to move to Portland. It's, it's definitely not a place for any, everyone, you know, it's, um, but it's hard not to like for a lot of reasons, you know, I won't, I won't go into my critique of it because that's not really the question, but there is a lot. To, I wouldn't have lived here for 13 or 14 years if it wasn't incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know, if there wasn't something really beautiful about this place. Um, but yeah. And I, I think that one of the main things that kept me here was probably being sober too. I eventually would get sober here, but, mm-hmm. um, get and stay sober here. But yeah, uh, I, I think I just, um, for the first time in my life, I started to feel comfortable in my skin here. I started to feel like it was, it's such a cliche, like keep Portland weird, but I always felt weird. I didn't feel like I fit in like with other people. And, and I felt like I fit in here and I felt like it didn't matter if you were weird here or, I mean, it's like counterculture is also a bit of a cliche, but there it's almost like there is no counterculture in Portland. There's this really famous kind of, um, guy we have in Portland who dresses up like Darth Vader and rides around in a unicycle playing the accordion. And that's just like Portland, you know? And like that is an everyday occurrence. It's an everyday occurrence in Portland. So if that's an everyday occurrence, then like, how can there be a counterculture? You know, it's just like Portland is that counterculture. And so I think, do you think Portland's more accepting? Just of, of, of people's unique, you know, individuality, or is it is it easier to find uh, a tribe here? Do you think in, in many places? I would say it's easier. Um, I'm loath to. I, ironically, I think that Portland. Uh, yes, I think it's more accepting. I'll also say I think Portland does still struggle to wrap its head around ideas that don't feel it fit into their little like political taxonomy you sure. know like if you Which are just, on the left just a little bit to the left right you know? no I'm, actually I'm kidding. oh I'm sorry. Kidding. <laughs> okay. sorry that was sorry that yeah. was I, I said it's so yeah. deadpan it probably came off serious no i mean we yet yeah, no it's it's it is it's funny like they're it's almost like being a, a centrist leftist in portland is like persona non grata <laughs> you know um and so while they are very accepting of different sexualities and different avocations and hobbies and all sorts of things. Um, that is one thing I've struggled. I, I can, we won't go into the politics side of it, but I consider myself a bit of a centrist and, um, they do, there are people here who struggle with that part of it, but I don't think that was your question. It is a place where it is really easy to be accepted for, let's just like talk outside the realm of politics. Yes. You know what I mean? It is a place where you will be accepted, whatever weird thing you're into, whatever you do, whatever you do for fun, um, whatever food you want to eat, whatever you want to drink. I mean, it is, this is the place for you, you know, and people are going to be really nice to you here, you know, so. Nice. Well, well, and it's a very comfortable place to be. Um, and uh, let's see, it was this, and it was the first place to legalize marijuana. I think. I think Colorado. Oh, Colorado. Colorado. Right. Colorado. Was, yeah. And Oregon was second. Second or yeah. third. Yeah. And it's, and, and so it, it, and the culture's it, it's kind of been ac- really acclimated because I remember the first time I came here and um, and it was legal. It sort of like was this newness. I don't think I'd been anywhere where they had dispensaries, you know, right. just, you know, in houses, you know, in different parts of the town and and walking into one and seeing, you know, this sort of seeing this culture beginning to develop and the acceptance of it, even though it again, I think that's. What I, I notice about this area, especially in certain areas of the Northwest, is his ability to be open and accepting and uh, inclusive at times. I mean, and you, you, 
I, I can't say that without also saying there are obviously when it gets into um, uh, the political view or spectrum, it can be just the opposite where um, less accepting and, and uh, less tolerant at times, I guess. Is I would say we're think. not tolerant of intolerant people, which might seem obvious. And you might hear that and say, oh, well, you shouldn't be tolerant of intolerance. And I think that could be its own podcast, you know, by itself. But I would say for people who are rigid or struggling with their own political identity or looking for that, they do have a very short um, kind of leash for people who don't really fit into the mold. You know, if you don't, if you're not voting for Bernie Sanders, you know, later this year, then what are we talking about? Yeah, right. right, right, right. Like you're voting for Biden. It's voting for Biden in Portland is probably like voting for Trump. You know, I mean, that's an exaggeration, (laughs) but but I understand what you see where I'm going with that. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, But I was was thinking, too, uh, you know, when we were talking earlier about this, this this idea that when you decided to have a a change of life and step into sobriety, you weren't even living here. You were actually in overseas. um, Yeah, yeah, you were in Paris, right, for a year or at least Europe. I mean, yeah, yeah. Paris most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, Paris most of the time. And so you and you and I was here right before you left because I came to your graduation. That's uh, right. Susan and I and, and I think Mary were here, too. Yeah. And um, and uh, that was kind of an interesting uh, trip. Shout out to Pacific University, <laughs> Forest Grove, Oregon. Yo, that's right. <laughs> and then uh, you and then you went and, and you, I mean, you had a whole group of friends here already. You were well established. Um, and you just gotten a degree and you went off to Europe to, uh, which you had been to. I mean, you, you, you speak, I don't know if you want to say fluently, but you speak French. Conversational. Yeah. Conversational plus is what I would tell people. Conversational plus. (laughs) Very nice. And, uh, yeah, this, if you can hear the dogs barking, this is Portland. And so there is a dog everywhere almost in every apartment i live in an apartment building in portland and northwest which is one of the very few remaining inexpensive apartments in this part of town that allows dogs and so i i was told that 75 to 80 percent of the residents in this apartment complex have dogs so if you hear dogs barking in the background it's just natural and normal yeah yeah, and we um, we should say that uh, your your beautiful pup's sitting here right next. She's lying next here right to us. beside us, being very polite right now. What? Why? What are you guys doing? <laughs> why aren't you paying attention curious. to me? Yeah. You're talking so. There's so much to each other. Uh, you know, I'm here too. <laughs> yeah, that's my little dog, sweet dog, Felina. Yeah, Felina. Okay. Um, so, what was that like coming back and then and then uh, getting getting sober over there and then coming back into this Portland uh, Portland culture and this environment that you've been in for so long and and th- and then not you know doing the same things that you were doing before with your friends, which is drinking. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. Um, it was difficult. Um, it was it was bittersweet i guess would be a way to put it um there was a lot of difficulty to it and then but i was also um i mean i was in my 11th month sober which things were starting to get easier so on the one hand i felt like i was kind of being given my life back a little bit i felt like my senses were coming back um i just wasn't suffering as much um and that was great and i just felt more comfortable in my body, more comfortable in my mind. I was sleeping better. I was eating better. I mean, a lot changes after about six months sober, like you, you start feeling a lot better. So that was there and that helped, but it was also really difficult because the, 
I was a part of the English speaking community in Paris and it was this very tight knit group of expats um, who I got sober with and it was like they were my litter mates and these were the people that got me sober and I left them behind when I left. Oh, and, interesting. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. From that perspective, that was your um, your group, your tribe at that point, because 100%. you had you had really they had invested into you and you invested into them. And 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 it you and, and that whole culture of that, especially there. I assume later in the podcast, we'll we'll get to talking about the power of community and fellowship and yeah. recovery and why it's we were talking yesterday about how that could be the glue that really does hold the whole thing together. But I can tell you from a first person perspective that I don't think without that community that I had there that I would have stayed sober. I don't think without that overwhelming sense of tribe and community and feeling a part of and feeling normal and um, having people really want to help me so much. Um just and really just letting me apart be a part of their group you know um and then once i was and once i felt like i was a part of i just never wanted to be without them mm. you know i spent so much time with them i felt inseparable from them um i loved each of them so deeply even the people that um annoyed me i loved them so much you know obviously there were like personality conflicts or people that i didn't get along with as well as others for whatever reason but i loved those people so deeply too so coming back here and leaving that was really hard um mm. because i just felt like i was starting over um it, it felt similar to when i we talked a little bit about this um when you had me on your podcast last time about getting expelled from the uh private school that i went to and then going to public school and that's just like very hard to start over socially, yeah, yeah. you know, and it was the same thing. And, and yes, I had friends here, but they were a lot of friends that I had drank with. Sure. Um, and there was this big shift and a lot of people stayed and a lot of people went and, and for people listening to this who have gotten sober, they'll know that there's just this line that gets drawn. And on one side are the people that don't really care if you drink and, and your social relationship wasn't based on alcohol and right. the people where right. it was. And, yeah. and it was that, alcohol or drugs or whatever that allowed you to like have some sort of meaning in your relationship. Um, so I found that really difficult. I, and I also just found, um, when I first started going to meetings in Portland, which I did, um, I found it to be what I called like commuter recovery, you know, where Com commuter commuter, like, oh. uh, uh, you know, you commute in, you commute out. Um, so in Paris, so in Paris and in Europe, um, Everyone went out for coffee after the meetings. I mean, every, we, we would go, oh, yeah. we would right. smoke cigarettes, we'd go to the cafe, the cafes were open late and people were drinking coffee. I mean, in Paris, people are drinking coffee until like midnight and smoking cigarettes, you know, on like a weeknight, which is crazy. Um, and uh, not that I'm advocating for that, by the way, I'm just saying it's a, it's a very different, like you don't see someone at 11 p.m. at night at a Starbucks train, you know, uh, maybe you do, maybe a certain kind of person, but it's more like, like your, how, your soccer mom's doing that in Paris here, where it's like your grungy, you know, Pearl Jam shirt wearing guy who's doing that here in the United States. So um, I, I digress. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but commuter I, recovery. Yeah, but I, I like I like that idea. You know, something else was coming up to me as you were talking about that. I'm going to just divert for a second because yeah. this idea, too, though, uh, when we talk about, you know, tribes, there's the, there's that notion, too, that 
um, the the people that we drank with or the people that one uses with become a tribe as well. And there's actually is connection in there. And that's even though it may be dysfunctional in, in many ways, it, it, there aren't necessarily always healthy boundaries and there's not necessarily a lot of honesty in there. Definitely self-care is um, low and uh, people are just trying to figure out how to, how to, how to get through the day. The, the 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 thing that brings pe- that people together like that though is still the sense of shared community even though it's not one that is very healthy sure. because there's such a, a level of escapism associated with self-medication and what i found having had a contrast between those social relationships before recovery and those after is that what those early relationships lacked was a really concerted effort with helping me grow and change really helping me become a better person um, rather than just passing the time and making jokes and saying little funny things and talking about movies and um, just like just skating along you know like being entertaining and being entertained by these relationships you know which is totally fine and you spend enough time with someone in that you're going to get close to them you're going to feel connection you're going to feel a community from them but and not that there weren't exceptions to this, but it, it, it is something that is very present with my friends in recovery, which is just this bent towards growth, just really, really helping each other grow, really sharing this common goal to be more present and be more authentic and mindful and to be of more service and all of these things that... Um, just getting out of self and not thinking about not being so self-absorbed, getting out of self-pity. Like there was no one helping me get out of self-pity when I was drinking with my buddies. They're like, oh, you're thinking about yourself too much. Or why don't you just like go volunteer? Or, you know, those are not the kind of conversations you have when you're at the bar. Best way to get out of your own way is to go help somebody else. Exactly. Like these were not um, pieces of wisdom that were being given to me like in my 20s at the bar. And not that there's anything wrong with those relationships necessarily. I just... um, Well, the vulnerability is is much lower in those kinds of relationships because it's scary. Right. And so the the connection and the camaraderie is is based a lot... This is, I think, what I was going towards earlier is there's a lot of fear. Sure. And and worry and, and concern... Um, about, you know, actually being okay, you know, about being able to be vulnerable and intimate in, in relationships. So that definitely the idea of learning to be uh, un- okay and uncomfortable at the same time. And yeah. to just be truly seen and accepted. I think that that's what I want and what I imagine most people really want is to just really be able to be ourselves and have that be okay and find a group of people and... um I just don't know how well I was doing that back then. That's something I think I struggle with um, and, and, and get help in recovery with. Um, but um, going so going back to the thing about recovery. So when I first got sober here, when I was first coming back, it just seemed like no one hung out after the meetings, or at least not the meetings I was going mm-hmm. to. You know, There wasn't people getting coffee. There wasn't groups of people who were seemed to be socializing a lot together. And when they were, it seemed like pulling teeth. It seemed like I remember a Friday night meeting I went to and um, they tried to organize some fellowship after the meeting, but it always seemed (laughs) difficult, you know, to Uh actually get people to show up. And, and this has all changed since then. I mean, I've, I wouldn't say that about recovery this now, six years later, I wouldn't say that, Um, but that is how it felt when I first came back is that at at um, the time. Yeah. finding the fellowship was hard for me. It wasn't immediately clear how and where to do that. Um, 
unless you wanted to hang out with the sort of uh you know 2 a.m chain smoking cigarettes crowd they were always down to fellowship they were always staying up way too late and that kind of stuff but i i uh you know i was in my early 30s i guess when i moved back and I think those days were kind of behind me. Um, I love that term, finding the fellowship, because that is so true. I mean, regardless if you're talking about AA or, or you know, twelve step or anything, yeah. that's really what it's it's about. I, I believe, um, because those uh, relationships in our lives um, that are healthy and um, we're able to differentiate, but also come together um, in a shared experience and an honest and vulnerable one, there is that sense of uh, community. And, and that's, I think that's what the fellowship really is all about. And that's why I'm, I'm not just talking about AA, but the whole idea of, you know, people, a group of people coming together to support one another right. and living a better life, a more wholesome or wholehearted life. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, the good news was that I found it, you know, um, and the way that I found it was I just, I got into action. They tell you to get into action. They tell you to try stuff. Um, and I went to meetings and luckily my, uh, girlfriend at the time who I'd moved from overseas, uh, to Portland with, she was also sober and, um, she had gone to him. So this is, this is, I'll, I'll tell you the path to how I found the fellowship or how I found my fellowship that I have today, which is, um, she had gone to a meeting at, at our Alano club here in Portland, which is actually just two, about a block and a half away from where we are right now. Um, stone's throw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and she said, Hey, I heard a guy share at a meeting and I think you'd really like him. And I want to introduce the two of you. And, you know, whether or not it's for sponsorship, whatever, she just, she knew that I'd been having trouble finding fellowship here. Um, and I eventually, I can't remember if I got his phone number, if we got introduced, or we, we both went to the same meeting, I can't remember. And I asked him if he'd be willing to be my sponsor. And he told me that he would sponsor me, but that I needed to show up at 8 a.m. at a meeting on Sunday called the Dignitary Sympathy Group. And it was a feedback meeting, which had never been a crosstalk meeting where mm -hmm. you could give feedback on other people's shares. I'd never heard of this. I'd never been to something like this. I was not used to getting up at 7.30 on a Sunday morning. I mean, I do that all the time now. But back then, six years ago, I was not getting up any time before 9 on a Sunday morning or 9.30. Um, but I said yes. I mean, that's what you do if you're in recovery. Like, people make a reasonable request. And, and it bordered on being unreasonable waking up that early at the time. But uh, What? You want me to get up when? Yeah. I, <laughs> but I was willing. I showed willingness, I think. Um, and I went. And I was blown away by uh, people talking, like, sharing feedback on what someone else had said in a meeting. That just totally blew my mind. And, and I won't, like, on this podcast, like, weigh in on, like, sort of the... There are pros and cons to a feedback meeting. It's it's kind of uncommon. And you might, if you're, like, an AA purist, purist you might say, like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Um, there is a lot of good things about it and a lot of bad things about it. And I, and I think that... Or challenging things about it. I shouldn't say bad, I suppose. But um, that could also probably be its own podcast. Um, well, you know, it's what... The, even back, if you go to the early roots of AA, even like go back to the Oxford group, they had sharing. I mean, they oh, had feedback yeah, meetings. Yeah. I mean, the, the, so the original tenants of 12-step, um, the, the, there was the group process as part of that. It, it, right. it's, it's, it, you're right. It's more, it kind of morphed itself more into, um, you know, sharing and speaking directly at 
um, you know, the people that are participating in the meeting and showing up for it. Um, but it, I, I, it hasn't always been that way. But it's nice. It's nice when I, I hear that because, of course, I love group process. It's, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. But anyway. No, I... And I, I like the format of not being able in 99% of AA to not be able to give feedback because I do think it frees people up to be safe yeah. and to say whatever. Sure. This is a place where you're saying things in front of a group of strangers that you might not say to your best friends, if, especially if you're new getting sober. You might be sharing details about your life. And the last thing you want is someone scared of some sort of... Um, recriminations for something they share. Um, so I think, that, I think, I think that is a, a principle to not have feedback is probably the right way to put it. But for us, what I quickly learned was that the kinds of people that were showing up at 8am on a Sunday morning on their day off to come to recovery, were taking it pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. And so the feedback model seemed to work at this meeting. But anyway, to make a long story short, um, I started going to that meeting every week. Uh, he started sponsoring me. Uh, he was the first person to take me all the way through the steps, which ended up being a really powerful experience. Um, I had been through the fourth and fifth, but with my sponsor in Paris, but hadn't finished them. And then actually getting through 12 was incredibly powerful. And then I met um, three or four or five people in that meeting who would later become kind of my best friends in recovery now. Um, I was... It's funny. I was uh, I was giving I was handing my keys to someone yesterday, like my car keys. I was separating my uh, car key from the rest of my keys, and I was looking, and I, I realized I had two two keys that I didn't quite recognize. And I was like, "Oh, these are like my two best friend, like my two best guy, like sober guy friends' mm-hmm. keys. Those are I have my my office keys, my car keys, my mail key, and then I've got two other keys and uh, like my gym card, and then I've got like my two best friends' keys who are sober. <laughs> these are like both sober guys, you know. Uh-huh. And I met them through that meeting basically, wow. and that was six years ago. Um, and then that, and when you say you have their keys, you mean the keys to their place. Yeah. 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 I have the keys to their houses. Cause I've, I lived with both of them at different points. You oh. know, when me and that, uh, the aforementioned girlfriend broke up, I went to live with one of them. And then when I went back traveling two years ago through Europe again for six months and I came back and I didn't have a place, the other one came and let me stay with them. And, and you know, we've gone on retreats together. We've gone on vacations together. We've, I mean, um, they have become my best friends. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have that right when I moved back, but I can I can sort of connect the dots in reverse to and meeting those people. And and, and that sponsor is going through steps. He's since relapsed, and I don't I'm not in contact with him anymore. But I said yes to these things. I said yes to what he told me to do. I went to this meeting. I ended up meeting these other guys, and now I. Um, I've created that fellowship here. Hmm. I have people I can call when the S hits the F. I can, <laughs> you know, um, I, you, I, you, you, I can swear. You okay. can swear on this. <laughs> All right. I can say fan. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> and the shit is uh, fan. You can say that. Good. So, yeah. So that's the story for me finding fellowship. And, um, yeah, it, it, it took a while. It probably took another six months to, to get close with those, those guys. But, um, you know we've since gone on and started other meetings and had lots of wins and losses and, you know, we watch each other's dogs and yeah, it's great. What was that experience like when you, um, I mean, cause this sounds like a fast, fascinating meeting to find for you at that time, right? Sure. Something really sparked in you, this idea of, well, beginning to listen to feedback. And I, and I understand in the, in the 12 step, um, tenants that they're, you know, it's working with a sponsor or a coach or, you know, the, the traditionally, um, someone who's got some time, uh, and, and it's part of their service is to show up for someone else. Um, 
what was that like to learn this idea of listening of, and what what how important was that in in your process um well if, if i can answer that second i can first tell you just what my experience was with feedback um because it was hard for me to listen at first, especially when people were giving feedback and especially when giving feedback to each other. Cause it was just so, as you might imagine, it was very dramatic. Uh, it led to a lot of confrontations because even though our feedback states, like we have three criteria for giving feedback, is it the truth? Does it need to be said? And can it be said in a loving way? Mm-hmm. Now those are great ideals. We very, <laughs> very rarely hit those three. And especially the third one, can it be said in a loving way? Uh, yeah, a lot of different people have different definitions of the word loving. And if you come to that meeting, which I'm, you're going to come to with me, which I'm so excited tomorrow morning. Um, but, uh, it was very, there's a lot of drama because when you're confronting people, there's just like going to be drama. A confrontation is going to be a little bit dramatic. And so, um, that was really interesting. And I remember the first retreat I went to, and I remember the first time I got feedback when I led a meeting and I was on my fourth step and I was, um, stuck on my fourth step like a lot of people do you get in mm-hmm. your fourth step and it's just like weeks turns into months months turns into many months and i was sharing about this and, and thought that they were going to go kind of easy on me i was like yeah i'm just kind of stuck and you know I, I know i just need to buckle down and do it and i was saying what i thought they wanted to hear and they just tore me apart they just said they were very gruff and um you know looking back i think it's kind of what i needed but it was a kick in the pants you know, and I'd never had that in an AA meeting before. A group of men just sort of tell me like, what are you doing? Like, you know, it was not patient, compassionate. They weren't giving me the soft pillow. I mean, and, and interestingly, like I got it done, you know, mm-hmm. I, it really sparked something in me. Um, and, uh, so that was very interesting. Um, it was very interesting getting feedback on my own stuff and it was very interesting, um, starting to be able to give feedback to other people based on the insights that I thought that I had. Um, and it does, um, it does really force you to listen. I mean, that was your question was about listening. Um, you really, really listening to what people are saying and you're really trying to think in a critical way about like what in your experience, like how you can help them. That is one way that, I think the feedback in those meetings is the most helpful is when people speak from their own experience from their own kind of like anecdotes that they can share. Um, Sharing from experience is, is powerful. Yeah. And be, being a group therapist, one of the, the, the things and the skills we I keep going back to is um, when I hear clients talking at another client in, in a group process is having them instead of talking at them and, you know, right. the, with the feedback is share your feedback through your own experience, which right. is, is a tenant of, of AA as well, of course. Yeah. And it's a tenant of like NVC of nonviolent communication. If you can yeah. shift something from you over to I, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot more peaceful way to speak to someone is to say, I've had very similar experiences and um, here's what I felt and here's what I did or here's what I feel helps in those kind of situations rather than saying you are and then some sort of adjective, you know, or some (laughs) sort of, you know. Um, So I really had to learn how to give and receive feedback. I really had to learn how to receive receive feedback and um, that was hard. It was really hard in the beginning. Um, Well, it's also this process of learning how to um, control one's defense mechanisms, right? Sure. Because 
um, if, if we if when I'm given something or something's presented to me that maybe I don't want to listen to, um, I'm probably not really listening uh, at it. I'm probably formulating my uh, reaction, you know, right. or my response. Right. Instead of actually taking a moment and and uh, hearing what someone else is saying. It's so funny. You're almost speaking verbatim from our um, from our format. It says if you. If you don't like what someone said, please wait until next week to give a response um, because you can't think about what someone is saying if you're busy preparing your own defense. I think that's like word for word what our feedback for what what our format says. What a great guideline. Yeah. That's really wonderful, actually. And not one that's probably used all that often either, at least in my experience. Yeah. No, it is. It's really... It's very interesting, um, and, and and there there will be people who try to get defensive, who try to start sharing again, and the and the group will kind of shut them <laughs> down a little bit. So there was that meeting, and then um, there uh, about two or three years ago, me and uh, kind of my core group of friends in recovery from that meeting started kind of a men's group, a private men's group, closed meeting, all sober, um, to work on a variety of issues, and. I would say it's in that meeting that like my listening skills were really put to the test because these were all people that, um, I mean, we just, we started working on process addictions in that meeting. Um, so we were all people who had years and years of recovery. Um, and we started working on sugar. We started working on sex and porn. We started mm-hmm. working on caffeine and workaholism. And we talk about like, there are guys in that group who love to buy like fancy Egyptian rugs. I'm not exaggerating like <laughs> Turkish and Egyptian rugs that cost five, $600. Like when they get stressed, they buy these rugs, you know, <laughs> watches, boots, sure. you know, everything. I mean, fast cars, consumption, consumption, yeah, yeah, yeah. gambling, you know, yeah. um, all of it, anger issues. I mean, and that has been amazing. So there's about 10 of us in that group and it's a feedback format that we basically borrowed the feedback from the Sunday morning meeting. Um, we all fancy ourselves as much more actualized and compassionate, <laughs> mature individuals, <laughs> humble. <laughs> um, oh, self-actualized. Yes. <laughs> and we meet every Tuesday night, uh, rain or shine. Um, uh, it's a committed meeting, which means unless you're really sick or out of town, you, you have to be there. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, I, I was just telling you when we were walking back here about how people had given me some feedback around, um, intellectualizing myself. And when I talk about myself and my, what I'm going through, that I'm detached from it, that I'm not really sharing the mess and that I'm not being really raw and myself, that it's this sort of like one degree of separation and, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that it, oh, what, what did they say? They said that, that this was feedback I got recently was you speak about yourself and your psyche like a salesman, like you're trying to sell like a version of John rather than just like like a journalist reporting on what's actually going on. So you're like, there's the journalist who's like literally just reporting the facts. And then there's like the salesman who's like selling the person. And they're like, you're like the salesman, you know? And that's like incredibly profound for me. Like that might not land for other people, but um, I... And people, very litigious yeah, people right, who yeah. don't know me will won't know that that's what I do for work is I'm in marketing I am a salesman you know um, I think that there's a reason that I uh, have that kind of job is I think that's the way my mind works is, is that kind of de- degree of separation from maybe the emotion of it and I'm more thinking about powers of persuasion or persuasion is the good term manipulation is the sort of (laughs) you 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 pick persuasion or manipulation perhaps they mean the same thing um 
<laughs> but um, this is where you and I started talking about listening was this is a meeting where I feel like people really hear me. They really listen to me. Um, and they, they, they really are able to give me very um, thoughtful, considerate and useful feedback. You know, and mm. it is uh, something I feel really grateful to have in my life. I was joking with you that it's like free therapy, you know. Um, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't, I want to be clear because I, you know, I mean, I, when you said that and we we're out, you know, coming back from, uh, by the way, eating at Ken's this morning, which was incredible. Ken's Bakery. And Ken's Bakery here. Um, that I, that is, that is legitimate therapy to me. I, when you have a group of people that are committed to their well being, and their welfare as well as the welfare of that community right and that it's real and it's vulnerable that's therapy i mean that that to take the degrees and the licensures and all those things away right. it's the same value and and uh, brings the same the same in, environment in which and i think we've talked about this too the idea of um, having unconditional positive regard right which is where the kindness kind of you know comes in as well right and we all love each other. And so I do think we have that. Um, and it's, but it's, it's almost like you have nine therapists all at once, you know, <laughs> with varying degrees of like acumen and skill. Um, some of them really get it. Some of them really get you. Some of them have really great feedback. Um, but there are, I think there might only be eight or eight or nine in our group. One guy just moved, but yeah, I mean, that is the, the, the power of the feedback model is, and we've been doing this for years now. And um, it's just an incredibly, it's hard for me to imagine my life now not having something like that in it. And I don't want to, sometimes I do worry, am I, well, on a macro level, when I imagine the amount of meetings I go to and the amount of like men's groups and AA meetings and other kinds of process addiction meetings, like, am I spending too much time sitting around talking about myself and my life and thinking about me and them and everything? And I, I am I overthinking my life? And um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't know. That's that's a, wor- a worry of mine sometimes is well, uh, that was feedback you got, of course. Right. right? Exactly. So you over intellectualizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but what it offers me is um, it's what I, I love to call it. Um, it's like group wisdom or collective wisdom. It's that like jelly bean mentality, like how many jelly beans are like in the jar and rarely one person will get it right. But the mean of the group is usually like almost exactly the right amount of jelly beans. You Isn't know? that interesting? This is, yeah. this is my metaphor that I love for the feedback model is that if you're in a room with 10 people and 10 jelly beans, like I feel like the average of their feedback is like exactly what you need, you know, and I'll get feedback from one guy that'll be like, where's your higher power in all of this? You know what I mean? Are you praying? Are you meditating? what's your spiritual practice like right now? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you need to really worry about that. I'll get another guy who will talk more about a left brain kind of approach or, you know, um, he'll share his experience or he'll have gone through the exact same thing. Um, I'll get another guy who will say, I remember you talking, oh, Johnny, I remember you were talking about something exactly like this two years ago. And he knows they'll know like the this, if I'm talking about women, they'll say, oh, I remember this girl that you were talking about two years ago and this exact same thing that you were doing then. Yeah. You know I mean? And it's kind of amazing. And, and I'm doing this for 
for them as well. We all know each other in this, we've known each other for so long and we've heard each other share these personal things that, um, are you mean like you're noticing patterns or schemas? That, exactly. Yeah, Some okay. people are pointing out patterns. Yeah. Some people are talking, bringing it back to the steps. Some people are, you know, um, some people are, are building you up and just saying like, I'm going to love you no matter what. You know what I mean? You're doing okay. Don't stress. Don't be your, I hear you. I hear you beating yourself up. Don't beat yourself up. And that's all they'll say, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's just this, each person gives you like a little something. And, um, I don't know. I find that, like I said, it's hard for me to imagine not having that in my life. And, and, um, I wish, I don't know how to say this about sounding like, I don't know what the, the adjective is, but I wish that that's, cause it's kind of like group therapy, you know, with your friends slash other people who are trying to get emotionally sober. But I wish that for other people, you know, not that I wish like too much time sitting around thinking about themselves or worrying about their problems or anything like that. But I guess I do wish collective wisdom for everyone. Yeah. You know, I wish that everyone had, had a well that they could go to for that because I think everyone struggles with something. I hope that's not like absurd to suggest, you know, everyone has some struggle and um, for every struggle you have, there's 10 people in your community who probably have some like beautiful insight on that thing. It's and true. So like, where do you, how do you pair those two together? The wisdom that could help you with, the problem you know well that that really that this idea i mean we get we talk gets back to listening you know how open uh, does one become need to become so that they can hear w w the feedback from the right. people that theoretically i mean there's the this becomes a trust exercise too right sure and it does and and sometimes feedback may not always be accurate but the chances are it's probably accurate most you know more than it's not Right. Because, um, you know, personal bias or confirmation bias will can easily get involved <laughs> sure. in it. So it can get it can be get, get become a little bit of a tangled web, I guess. So um, but this idea of, of being able to take feedback and to be able to um, be a good listener, uh, you know, starts with just the idea of, um, as I was talking about earlier, of of being able to monitor and and regulate our defenses at least that's what i feel for myself when i know that um, i become reactive to people it's because i i'm feeling defensive you know i feel like something's either um you know like you know there's some type of injustice going on or um uh, shame or shame or shame. my shame is coming up in some way yeah. that's um creating that that um opportunity to become reactive because it doesn't feel safe right you know and and that's really it's not about the other people i always come back to that, that that's about me right so this is something i really struggle with actually and i have have looked to you actually as someone who i mean i'll get to this in a second but i feel like so you talked about defenses coming up for people who like how do you listen how do you take in valuable feedback how do you listen to that how do you let that land for you and, and not just completely reject it and i just some people everyone's at a different place and everyone's ready to hear, hear different truths about them there are truths about me that even if you could state them clearly and articulately and, and kindly i just 
for whatever reason, I have built-in defense mechanisms like around my heart that just, I couldn't take it in. That's mm. just been my experience. I could listen to you and I could entertain it, but I would block it in some way. If it was just a little, if, if I'm not ready for it, if I'm not at a place uh, in my own recovery and my, on my own path where I can really hold it and look at it and think about it because, and I've had that happen in the past where people suggested things to me and I just wasn't ready yet. I wasn't ready to really be able to let that land for me. And I've had enough sponsees to know that, you know, I can be right or feel like 95% sure that I'm right. And say something to them and they're not ready to hear it. They're a couple steps away from being able to hear that truth about them. Um, I've had sponsees that, I mean, this is just the first example that comes to my mind that thought their biggest problem was drugs or alcohol when really I felt like their relationships with the opposite sex or the sex that they were attracted to was like a way bigger issue for them. And I tried to say like, hey, can we just talk about your relationships a little bit or the way that you're treating or talking to women? And it was just a block for them. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I was giving them, I mean, whether or not I was right or wrong, I was trying to have a conversation with them and they just couldn't see it. They couldn't talk about it. They couldn't. So it wasn't that they weren't listening to me. And so I'm not, I'm not meaning to like warp your question, but it's like, so there's, there, you can like listen. Is it the difference between listening and hearing? You know what I mean? There, or, yeah. um, and so I don't know. I don't have some sort of insight there. Um, but the, the, the thing that I find interesting and something I think you do really well, which I'm kind of trying to learn from you is how to talk to someone and figure out what they're ready to hear. You know, I heard you having some conversations over this last Christmas break where you were very patiently having some conversations that I would have just wanted to scream. You know what I mean? (laughs) That I felt so upset and so uncomfortable that I wanted to just shake someone and scream at them. And I think you have this way of auditing where that person is at and finding the right way to deliver the message. Mm. And so both are, I mean, both are listening exercises. They are. That person can listen to me shout at them or that person can listen to someone talk. Um, But that, I guess that I find just just as interesting, you know, is um, how do you meet people where they're at? And how do you, how do you help someone like that? You know, like, what is that? I'm kind of asking, answering your question, question, but. It's a really good question because I mean, you all, the the truth is, starting where the person's at is the only place that you can start right. if you want to connect and create a space in which that person can share. Right. Otherwise, if if the expectation is I want them to be in the same place I am with this issue or what my awareness or understanding is, is basically setting them up to um, fail. I mean, which is then it's not about them; it's about me at that point because my expectation or is, is based upon the assumption that I know what's best for them in this moment. And the truth of the matter is they do probably right. if, if they, you know, if, because if I'm not starting where they're at and I may have an expectation, they're supposed to be somewhere else. I'm basically sabotaging the, the opportunity to create an environment environment where, you know, some change can happen because so, I'm, I'm putting expectations on it. So as a counselor, so, cause you just said they probably know where I'm at or where, what they need better than I do. So, but don't you ever as a counselor or, you know, with addicts just think like, man, if they would just, 
do these couple of things I'm asking them to do or just do you not have a because I know what I'm saying is totally arrogant no no <laughs> like no I know no. better than they do, do I'll ever... go ahead and I'll, I'll tell you the the uh, the awful truth um, <laughs> and uh, that and every therapist that I've worked with except maybe you know a small percentage um, quite often especially working in the addiction field just some days just want to slap people across the, <laughs> slap them across the face or the head or whatever I mean I know it's a terrible thing to say but it's also the truth the awful truth that you know stop you know stop what you're doing it's more of like which is why confrontation can work but it can also wound right um confrontation um can bring about change and and stop somebody uh, or at least create an atmosphere that can stop um a situation that may be escalating but it can also wound somebody too and so it has to be used very gingerly and very carefully the the term brutal honesty I've, I've always i've always had some you know i guess mixed feelings about because i i i i kind of grew up in a culture that said yeah just lay it out you know be you know be confrontational give 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 them you know rub their face in in the dirt and the truth of the matter is that's that's not true in fact that becomes more about the person that's delivering the information than it does actually create an environment which is allowing that person to come to it themselves so what is your when you sit down with someone who you think there's a piece of information that you want to impart to them or something um and you feel like they they have some pushback to it or some aversion i'm i'm specifically thinking of a kind of political conversation we had with one of my siblings over the holidays um (laughs) and but my question is when you're sitting down to try and have a civil conversation where they get to be heard and you also get to be heard. How do you get there? Like, how are you, what's your process with that? Like, what are you doing mentally to sort of show up for that in that way? Well, it's like, what's my goal? I have to say, I have to check in and go, and I know the conversation you were talking about. So what's the goal? What is I want to create here? And so it's sort of stepping back and saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to create the environment I'm going to create the result that the environment I'm, you know, that I'm, I'm presenting and, uh, and my ability to be able to be open and hear this person and acknowledge that I'm hearing them, uh, the success of this conversation is going to be based upon that for me. So I must, I believe I have to approach that, that situation by creating an environment that means I'm not going to judge them based on their feelings. Because first of all, feelings are never wrong. They're just feelings, you know, and, and it's irrational to argue with feelings. Right. And so I, that's where I sort of like pull back and go, okay, this is what this person's feeling. And, and that's okay. Um, and if they're feeling defensive or if they're experiencing defensiveness and I'm, I'm witnessing that, then, you know, I try to find a way to reason around the idea of what's really most important here. What is the outcome that the person is looking for? Because they may be creating a whole story that seems very reactional to a situation. And really the outcome is they just want to feel safe. Right. So if I'm confrontational with them in that moment, it's true that the chance of them feeling safe is probably only going to reinforce um, the dilemma or the opinion that they have. Right. Right. And right. so it, to me, it's like, it's like pulling back from that and then using, you know, 
it may be a little bit manipulative to do this, but using analogies. Thank you. Yeah, to be using analogies to try to connect to them, you know, through other kinds of life experiences, or using um, uh, personal disclosure, which right, like we talked about. Yeah. So what I hear you, what I hear you saying a little bit, which is what I don't always employ when I'm feeling angry uh, or stressed, anxious, is you kind of start with the end in mind. You were like, this is where I want to get. And this is, I think, what you said two things. Here's where I want to get in this conversation. Here's Mm -hmm. what I'm hoping to accomplish. And you're kind of diagnosing them emotionally at the same time and saying, this is probably what they're, you know, feeling, or this is what they might be wanting to get out of this, or maybe why they're holding on to this thing. It sounds a little bit like Mm -hmm. you're putting thought into that. Maybe why they might have that feeling. And you're like, here's where I can hope we can get to together, which probably seems like some higher functioning mental gymnastics rather than, because for me, it's it, which I don't, it's funny. Like I, I, uh, when I argue, I, I'm much more expressive. I, I, I will often criticize people for doing this exact thing, basically losing track of the goal and the ball and just pure expression. I just need to express myself. I need to talk about how angry I am. You know what I mean? I think this is in politics a lot like right now. You know what I mean? It's like everything needs to be really politically correct. I just want to express how wrong I think this is. Like, who cares? This is, this is just my opinion. You know? <laughs> who cares whether or not this hurts my cause? I just need to be heard. You know what I mean? This is the time of being heard right now. Right. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's, it's, it's alienating people or making people feel crazy. And, I think that's kind of what I do. This is a little like sort of real time self-diagnosis, but I think I get really expressive. And I, when I hear people with particular views, it brings up something for me. And then I sort of lose sight on where I want to get to with them, the goal that I want to get to with them. And I'm not even really thinking about that at all. I'm just thinking about telling them how wrong they are, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> which is feels a little hypocritical, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, am I no? You're you hitting it right in the head. the The idea is definitely with that is, um, I mean, for myself, I even though I I may have strong feelings about these some of these topics and these issues, I also realize that I I I can't approach the person that they're wrong. And because if if I'm approaching the person that they're wrong, they know that. Right. I mean, and so I have to the one I, I have to take the responsibility of being open, and and listening and hearing. Right. And that gets back to what we were talking about before. It's just you know with, with some of these issues. I was thinking about that as you you were talking about this and how controversial things are today, especially politically. That they, I mean, even though things maybe were worse twenty or thirty years ago. Right. Um, you know, in, in some ways, the, the reactiveness today and the polarization or the tribalism is worse. So I, I remember I was thinking, as you were saying that, that there was a, that uh, on, on Garrett Morris on Saturday Night Live back in the 80s. And so this is going way back. And he said he did a skit about, you know, killing all the white people. Mm-hmm. And um, this it was it seemed normal and funny. And everyone looked at it as being tug in cheek today to, to say that, you know, there would be an uproar around it. And, right. you know he may be taken off the network and and so this whole idea and that's part of the reason why i created this podcast not not just to talk about recovery issues but to talk about my gosh we take we take each ourselves so fucking seriously <laughs> you know we don't realize that everyone's that we're just another bozo on the bus and that right. the sooner we can figure that out and the sooner the happier we'll be and we don't have to make make look at everyone else as just being the bozo 
Right. You know, that it, we're all we're all on the bus together. It's even though we would really like to have our separate buses, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we're like we're living in a time where if you feel any discomfort from something that someone says, it's just like completely unacceptable to feel uncomfortable. That's the time we're living in right now. And I don't know, I, I think things will be different in five or 10 years, but mm-hmm. if someone posts something on Twitter or a politician says something, or someone says something on a, an actor from a TV show, says something in their own Twitter account that could be even slightly perceived as racist, xenophobic, sexist, you know, um, it's just like, it's just completely unacceptable to make people uncomfortable, you know, that to, to, to make people have to like have a second thought and a third thought and a fourth thought. So the first thought is like, oh, wow, I find that offensive. That makes me uncomfortable. Okay. The second thought could be, if you wanted, what's the intentions behind that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what, 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 who is this person? Why are they saying this? You know, um, the third thought could be like, did they mean to offend me? Is this just me? Is this okay? The fourth thought could be, okay, well, in the privacy of their own, blank, 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 is this okay? You know, we never get even to two in that. You know what I mean? I feel like right now it's like, oh, you're uncomfortable or there's enough people that are uncomfortable and then you just like sweep it under the rug. And there's all these issues that come up that could be talked about. I think about like Roseanne Barr, or like she was the one who, she got kicked off her TV show, right? I can't remember who it was. Yeah, yeah, it was Roseanne Barr, yeah. No, I'm not I'm not advocating or defending for what she said. It's it, What I find more interesting is just this like, I do find cancel culture really interesting. Yeah. That it's like, it made people uncomfortable and we can deal with that in a society however we want. Like people being uncomfortable, yeah. you know? But I think cancel culture is this totally, well, I, I just, again, totally my opinion. I think it's short-sighted. I think it solves a problem in a short term. And then what it doesn't solve is like all of those like secondary and tertiary questions that could come up with some of these things. Um, you just don't talk about them because you just cancel it. And then everyone forgets about it. Like that's how we'll handle it. We'll just like, we'll cancel it. We'll sweep it under the rug. Like whatever kind of like provocative, interesting questions that could have been arisen about this. We don't get to have meaningful conversations about race. We don't have, get to have meaningful conversation about sexism. Um, okay, I'm going to say one more thing, and then I promise I'm going to cut this off because we can probably talk about politics all day. But the thing about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, right? He he ostensibly potentially said that, like, we're not ready to elect a female president or a female president couldn't win right now. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the new story is whether did he or did he not say that the new story is not is it true there's so many interesting conversations that could come from that sure you know what i mean yeah like is that true what is sort of the the psyche of the united states right now are people are you know college educated white women you know what i mean going to vote for a woman in 2020 like there's just like this cascade of really fascinating questions that could come whether he said that or not you know what i mean we could be talking about that but the new story is did he say it did he not say it that makes me uncomfortable if he did say that so like he's a bad person if he said that it's this like very boring, dramatic, daytime television, reality television BS to me. You know what I mean? And what gets left out in all of this is these really, really interesting conversations that could be had. It's the soap opera of news is what it is. Exactly. And news news has has, um, become a bit of a soap opera. Right. There's there's no doubt. And it reports like a soap opera does a lot lot of times. Okay. Um, Fearing away. No, no, but you know what I want to say to to validate that is... um, the, the notion um, uh, of uh, sort of what outliers are, because, you know, people think Trump's an outlier, right? That, sure. know, because, I mean, talk about, you know, insulting and, you know, how he uses Twitter. I, I mean, 
it's he's an outlier only from the aspect that most people don't do that right the, sure. the mean you know as much as you know the mean tries to keep somewhat you know less reactionary like that it's more responding to things um it doesn't but then there's this this portion of our culture that more and more the outliers maybe is, are growing a little bit but you're going to have outliers they're always going to be there and it because it's not the norm it's like well but just accept it for what it is instead of trying to point out that it's an outlier all the time it's like i think everyone's got it you know and i'm it's almost as if like wasting the air the breath or the the energy around trying to redefine something that you know is the way it is and either you know people accept that and you know and 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 like it or support it or whatever it is or they feel good about it in some form uh, uh, you know that it's it's different it's probably in the long run going to be what it is and i and and i'm not trying I, I realize probably my bias is is that by defining it as an outlier it's probably something that won't be around for a long period of time but i could also be wrong too i don't know who knows who knows if there'll be like a regression to the mean with trump or if this is like a new norm where this kind of behavior is just I don't know. Or maybe this is the beginning of the end for this like iteration of our democracy. And we're just going to we're going to become the sad British Empire. Or whatever. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. I think our democracy is definitely being tested by this. And again, I'm not weighing in on this is a this is a, a definite test of um, what free speech means. And we're just living in a really interesting time. I mean, again, I, there are so many interesting questions that it's it's really easy if you're on the left to just like hate someone who seems as odious as Donald Trump. But I also do think that um, there's so many interesting questions that come up in having someone like vice president. Totally agree. And you can get so lost in the fear. You can get so lost in the hatred. You can get so lost in like whatever he tweeted today that you sort of like don't stop to ask yourself like what it means to about the psyche of your country or where your country's at to have elected someone like him and how you are personally responsible to make whatever your ideals are. Um, approachable for people who voted for someone like Donald Trump. That's yeah. another thing that, I mean, I argue with my friends in Portland about a lot. There's like, if you hate Donald Trump, like, how do you make yourself approachable to the kind of person that would vote for him? Right. You know, how do you make your politics and your, you know, whatever you consider to be your values? Like, I just, and maybe this is like a, maybe this is a way for us to like um, pivot back over to recovery, but this is something that I, I didn't really think about a lot until I went through the fourth step and, and went through the steps, which is just like how I just feel like I have, I'm personally responsible for almost everything that's going on and whether or not it's, and I don't mean that in sort of a megalomaniacal kind of way. I just mean, I have a certain amount of power in everything, you know? Um, so what does that mean? It just means that even though I don't, singular like singularly have the power to like elect or not elect donald trump i do have some influence i have a small sphere you know what i mean and what am i doing in that small sphere you know what i mean like when i traveled a year ago um i had there were a lot of republicans that traveled with us what how how am i with them do i shame them you know what i mean uh do i antagonize them or do i try to just like um talk about my beliefs and my opinions and my values and and why i you know in a in an approachable way in a way where i can try and like woo people over to my side or do i just continue because this is what a lot of republicans say right is like that if you're a republican that means you're a racist or if you're a republican that means you're this or that i mean um well that's not true no of course not of of absolutely not it's preposterous it's that 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 kind of like the narrative i mean but i i just 
I'm just, I think we all have, um, I wish we all took more responsibility. I wish we took a, an active role in the things that we think are wrong in our society and, and whether or not that's on a national level, like how we, um, how we deal with someone like Donald Trump on a local level too, you mm-hmm. know, like don't just get stuck in fear. That is a, a, an incredible tenant of recovery is be active, get out there, help, you know, try to make a difference, that kind of stuff. And plenty of people are doing that, but I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't know where I was going with yeah. any of that. Well, the, you know, something you said, and, and I liked how you kind of ventured off into that because of, the idea of what Bernie supposedly said or hadn't said, you know, and there's right. a great discussion around that. And there's also other truths is that, you know, around it that and which change with perspective, of course. So the idea that um, and this is how ideas are so fascinating, too, because they're just ideas. Right. And and, and we, then we want to look for data to verify them so we can confirm our bias, <laughs> whatever that is. But the notion that a woman couldn't maybe be elected as president. And the truth of the matter is, is that um, Hillary Clinton in the last election, regardless of whether you voted for her or not, got the majority of votes. Yeah. So, I mean. Is it possible? Well, yes. Um, and but she didn't become president because of the system that we have in place, which, again, for better, or for worse, I'm not going to overanalyze it. I, I, I think there are pros and cons to it. But I think this this is kind of like life. Right. It's like so be, it, it, it's a, it's a beautiful representation of life and recovery and truth and honesty and and trying to find our way through this this whole uh um, soup, stew, uh, <laughs> sausage making, whatever you want to call right. it. Um, you know, what's really all this about? What, what are we, what are we trying to get to? And, and I know ultimately for me, it comes down to accountability and transcending or doing my best to transcend any victimology or, or victim narrative that I continue to have, because all that does is push, push off my healing and my growth uh, and my ability to live wholehearted onto some other person, place or thing. And so I don't end up taking ownership of it um, because maybe it's uncomfortable. And you said something right before all that too, was that, you know, we, people have, and I remember how, how you exactly how you presented it, but this idea that nobody wants to be uncomfortable anymore or people are uncomfortable being uncomfortable. And, And one of the tenets that I have in my practice as well as, in the agencies that I work for is that we, especially working with, with people that struggle with substance abuse or obsessive compulsive or addictive behaviors is the idea of learning to be okay and being uncomfortable at the same time that I can be present and I, and I can be okay, but I can also regulate or manage the sense of uncomfortability that I have and that it's not wrong or bad, or I have to self-medicate or run from it or, you know, yeah, I completely agree. I think that my biggest wins that I've had in the past half decade or seven years came from moments where I was just incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable dating back to like my bottom as an addict. I mean, that was one of the most painful physical and psychic experiences of my life. And it was also this huge inflection point after which like so many confetti emojis and balloons and hearts came right after that, you know? I mean, that 
I was really uncomfortable then and it led to this really great thing and I've had these moments ever since then where these moments of feeling really incredible and where every cell in my body is like this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong this hurts this is difficult it led to just incredibly meaningful and profound growth and that's actually one of those two guys that I was telling you about one of my two best friends in recovery some of the times he'll just give me the feedback. He's like, I don't know what is right for you right now. So just do the thing that makes you the most uncomfortable. That's what you're <laughs> supposed to do, you know? And it's the total opposite of what we get taught. Do the thing that makes you feel the most uncomfortable. I like that's what that. he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, that's how you'll know that you're doing the right thing, you know? And it's not like suffering for suffering's sake. It's not, it, that's not the, the philosophy there. It's just... Um, well, those are different things, right, by the way. Right. Suffering and uncomfortability are different. Right. Or being uncomfortable. Like like going to the gym for more than 10 minutes is uncomfortable. You know, it's like like lifting weights is uncomfortable. Your muscles, it's like actually there's a little bit of pain involved mm-hmm. in that. It's the same thing. I know it's a cheesy metaphor, but um, this is especially in dealing with some of my process addictions. There have been so many moments where I made a choice not to do something, an old pattern or behavior. And because I wasn't getting that dopamine hit from it, I just felt moments of almost insanity of being uncomfortable because I didn't act out like an old behavior, you know, but it was, it was exactly what I needed to do. And it completely changed me. And so that's why I get so frustrated with like our inability seemingly as like a nation right now to be uncomfortable. Because I think that if we could allow ourselves like to have people say things that offend and scare us and just like pause Mm -hmm. and let it, sit and let it land and not fire anyone. You know what I mean? And then talk about it. You know what I mean? And then talk about why it was painful. It's like, that's where the, the, a a smarter, more thoughtful nation comes from is being able to like tackle those questions, but you make people dumber by just like sweeping it under the rug. You're taking all that critical thinking away from people that like I have needed so much in my life. I've needed the like sort of growth that comes from that pain, you know? And so maybe that's why I feel so passionately about it that like why that cancel culture is such a bad thing is because I really think you're preventing people from thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. no one's going to think critically. No one's going to have to think about this in a meaningful way. We're just going to totally like our viewers are uncomfortable. Our shareholders or the board, like, you know, realizes that public opinion is da, 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 get rid of it. You know what I mean? Strike it. I mean, it's just like, you're totally robbing people from an opportunity to, to think, you know, to, and to, to evolve and change and to ask ourselves questions about why we're uncomfortable. It's crazy. You know, why are these comments uncomfortable? Why, why, what is it about Bernie's comments that makes it uncomfortable? Cause really, if you, if you zoom in on the Bernie thing, like the really, and I, I listen to this on the political podcast that I listen to is like this whole idea of people won't vote for Warren because they think their neighbors won't vote for her. You know what I mean? It's the idea of this sort of like perceived third party electability. You know what I mean? This is this fascinating psychological phenomenon that like, I'm sure thesis papers could be written about. You know what I mean? The idea of like, oh, well, I would vote for Warren, but I don't think my neighbor will, so I'm not going to vote for her. That could be the national conversation is sort of like chiseling that down and saying like, hey, we're, we realize this is a phenomenon is happening. We're not going to give power to this. Let's have a woman president. You know what I mean? But instead it's this drama. It's this total like that what the news story is is like did he or did he not say this all the while no one actually believes bernie sanders is a sexist you know what i mean no one thinks he is yet this is a news story like maybe he said this thing like it just makes no i mean it does make sense when you think about how we're all probably like conditioned for little these little like one-liner drama pieces that probably do like 
are escapists in their own way. Drama. I mean, I am totally addicted to drama in my own life because I find it incredibly fun and escapist, you know, (laughs) but that isn't like healthy for the nation. That's not healthy for news outlets. You know, it's not healthy as a way to sort of like have a national conversation is to take like little, it just, it gets clicks. It sells newspapers and all that kind of stuff, you know? all that the attention economy right that's sure. like like what tristan harris talks about anyway i'm like veering all over the place here okay. but you kind of see what i'm <laughs> no it's, it's i mean this the, these issues all come keep going back around and we're we are going to end up being going full circle here but right. the the notion of you know what we're talking about these issues and especially when we talk about them is um, in an open, open way, being able to have kind of open discussions like this and be and, and ask questions. Right. So um, the you know, you had asked me a little while ago, you know, well, how do you talk with somebody that, you know, maybe has a much has a much different opinion that I disagree with. Right. right. Um, you know, and, and really the, the way to open that up and to, and to start where they're at is to ask them questions, too, you know, and and not passive aggressively or with sarcasm because or answers or leading them like a lawyer yeah right or leading them along because then it gets it becomes manipulative and it becomes more about persuasive yeah but it becomes more about getting them to conform to my confirmation bias about things right so which it doesn't again there's no winning in that kind of situation you know the scorekeeping that can often happen so um, you know, family members, we, we joke about, the, I mean, we joke about it. That was over the holidays, you know, differences in people's opinions and experiences and their fears come out and they, they may say something that seems really irrational or, or um, you know, uh, bias or racist in some kind of way or not in keeping with yeah, right. like the data that's out there right. or like, yeah, yeah. like knowable. Yeah, sure. And so when those things happen, it, it can be the, the moment can become really charged. Sure. And so it's again, wanting to get back to where starting from a place where um, the person's able to listen, but to, to be a good, you know, to be a good listener, have also have to be able to ask questions that are objective Right. And that really come, comes down to this, too. The One of the things that I, I did also want to talk about, and, and, uh, the question was, you know, what is it that creates? What are the tenets that create the aversions um, to participating in, you know, vulnerable um, group processes or be, becoming part of a fellowship or even this kind of situation that, you know, you had um, with, with family? I mean, it's the same kind of thing. How do you how do you get vulnerable like that? You know, and and but the, there are certain things that that that. that um, there's a, an adversity that people have. They don't want to show up. And this happened. Um, this happened last week uh, in a group. We had someone that came back to it after they'd they'd come like a year. They had come like a year ago for a month, and it, it you know they they didn't want to keep, you know really fully engage in the group and become vulnerable in the group so they came up with some story or reason why they didn't want to do it and that's okay it's not for everyone i understand that Um, but then they came back wanting to get involved with the group again and there was kind of a conflict because in their time away the year off they had gotten involved with someone in that group Hmm. and so they created a situation well then what happens to that that person which is why we say don't 
don't date in recovery, of course, um, you know, if you're in the same kind of group, because it, 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 it creates a conflict. And how do you talk about, you know, your relational dynamics, which I think you were talking about, you, you brought up before is that's probably one of the biggest things that people end up talking about, um, you know, in, in recovery and sober, sober circles. I mean, in every circle, basically is relational dynamics, you know, and the obsession and the compulsions associated with them. Sure. And so this kind of this kind of it came up and I said, well, you know, so, you know, there's obviously some different dynamics going on here. How do these get addressed? And it was fascinating because the person who the, the person that was in the group that they'd been dating for the past, I don't know, four or five, six months, something like that, said, well, I'll step out of the group and you can go back to it because you need it more now than I do. And I was like, what? Why are you doing that? Why are you taking away? Why are you giving up your group that you, you come to maybe not every week, but you know, two to three times a month for this person? And I was like, is that an act of service or is that an act of dependency? And that's kind of what I wanted to explore with you and what your thoughts on that were, um, because there is this sometimes an aversion to wanting to be part of a group and then accept when it's convenient, you know? Right. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I can, I can definitely speak on aversion to being vulnerable and why some people, including myself, have that at times. Um, I think uh, there's three things I can think of. One is you, you honestly just don't know what's going on with yourself. I think like just the self-knowledge, that's sort of like the most basic reason is like you actually don't know what you're thinking or feeling, you know? And so you can't share something you don't know. Um, the second thing I would say is just, yeah, fear of rejection, fear of uh, being ostracized, um, fear of being kicked out of a group. Maybe this person thought if they shared this thing that they were gonna lose something that they really held dear, you know? Um, and then the third thing, and the one that I find probably the most interesting is because of its embedded irony is like um, being be perceived as weak, you know? Um, and if I share with you that I'm not doing okay or that I, you know, my, my cell phone got shut off last month or that um, I relapsed or, you know, that I've been sleeping with my ex again or, you know, that I've been thinking about relapsing or, I mean, I'm so afraid that that's going to make me look like a weak person that I'm mm -hmm. just not going to share that with you, you know. And what I try to tell my sponsees and try to tell myself because I forget this too is... Um, it takes a lot of strength to say that you are struggling. You know, it takes a lot of strength to share that with someone because what you're implicitly saying is that I have enough confidence to own it. You know, mm -hmm. I have enough confidence to say that I'm not all right, you know, which is a really hard thing to do. Um, well, it's, that's also goes back to this idea of it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? right. You know, because yeah. that's definitely why it, it's difficult to be vulnerable, maybe show up in these situations, because it is uncomfortable. Let people see the soft underside of our belly, so to speak. Right? Yeah, and you have to, not only that, but you have to be okay with whatever they're going to think about it. It's, it's the ego stuff, Something too. we can't control. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you, you have to be okay with it yourself to share it, and you have to be okay with whatever, because it's control. 
if I'm not vulnerable with you, how much control do I have? A lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a ton, because I'm not sharing anything with you. But the moment you show me your sensitive underbelly, your true self, what you're really thinking and feeling, all of those mm-hmm. disgusting thoughts that we all have, you know what I mean? And we've all got them, you know, <laughs> the moment that you share those, it's like you, it's like you have, you've let the cat out of the bag. I'm going to think whatever I'm going to think about you. You know what I mean? And you can't control that. So I'm saying that because like, that's why it's brave. You know what I mean? That's why it's like, so we, there's the the, the embedded irony is like, oh, well, I don't want people to think I'm weak. No, people will think you're incredibly brave if you let them know that on some level you're okay with what they're going to think about you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it might hurt, you know, but that's, that's what uh, is so cool about recovery is that people get training on that you know, is that if you stick around long enough, you are just going to learn. I I mean, it is the, it is like one out of a hundred people that are not going to learn how to be vulnerable if they keep going to recovery. And I'm not talking about AA. I just mean any kind of recovery where people are sharing vulnerably. Like you just get trained and trained and trained on any kind of support group. Yeah. Yeah. Because you just hear it all day, every day. You're just, you know, like, I love that expression. If you stay in a barbershop long enough, you're going to get your, you're going to get a haircut. You know, like, I think if you hear vulnerability that much, Mm -hmm. you're going to start being vulnerable, you know, because you're going to think that it's okay. And, um, yeah, I was just having a conversation, um, while I was back at home for the holidays where a friend of mine had really been struggling financially and, um, he had finally reached out to a friend of his and kind of asked for some help with work. And that friend had said, like, why did you wait so long to tell me that you were having yeah. a hard time? He's like, I, I would have, I I'd do anything for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always going to be here for you. And he's like, well, I just, I was so afraid, you know, of what you might think, you know, or I didn't want you to think that I didn't have my shit together. You know? right. right. And that, so your question was like, you know, what is people's block to being vulnerable? Well, it's like exactly what he said, you know, it's. I mean, let me ask you something. Why do people spend thousands of dollars on therapists and lie to them? This is someone who like, unless you're like, like planning out hurting someone or planning out hurting yourself, not going to tell, can't tell a soul about this. It's true. So why do you think people lie to their therapists? Um, That's a really good question. (laughs) Well, they're looking They're They want someone to tell them they're okay. Right. Yeah. They want please tell me I'm okay. Right. Please tell me I'm enough. Even though, you know, the, the, the notion is in this case that, well, I'm there to discover what the, my internal dialogue, what part of it is probably really unhealthy for me and creating the shame and the, the negative self-talk that propels me into doing things that are unhealthy. Right. And so that would be the stuff to be able to talk about. But there are there are times when people come to a therapist and and they just want to be told that they're OK, which is one of the things I do do is I, I tell people, you know, there's nothing really wrong with you. Right. You know, but you, you have a am you I know, normal? You have, yeah. Am I normal? <laughs> yeah. You have you have you have a negative self-conception, right. which is has a stranglehold on your ability to be consistently effective in life and to nurture yourself. I mean, I can, I'll be vulnerable and say, this is something I ask my, I have a therapist and I ask her that all the time. She's like, she'll say, do you need any, I'll tell her something and she'll say, do you need anything from me? And I'll say, am I normal? I'll say, I just, I think I need this to be normalized. Like what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. I just want to feel like I'm not crazy, you know? And then she will, she'll like comfort me and she'll say, well, here's why I think what you're doing is normal. And she'll put things in perspective for me. So I can totally... But I, so I can relate to that, uh, and I think that's true. But and do you think there are vulnerability blocks for people who are in therapy? Do you think that they struggle? 
to say those most difficult things to say, you know, whatever their worst thoughts or feelings. Not that maybe that's what the point of therapy is, but I mean, I, I, I will just for myself say that, like, I have struggled in the past saying to therapists, like, things that I'm scared to, like, say to people, you yeah. know, that I don't want people to know about me. Yeah. You know? Well, it's like, it's like the client comes in and they're smiling and they're telling their stories and all of a sudden they start crying and you know and they're, they're so they're still like just trying to put humor over the top of that like right. you know like an icing on a cake that has it's falling apart underneath it and so i don't know why i'm crying and i'm saying be you're actually feeling sad or worried or fearful of something and it's it's coming out and I mean, but there's this incongruency because you're trying to laugh and be light about something that really is painful for you right now. Right. And what is it that you just need to, to cry about? You know? And will they? Yeah, they usually will they just usually, go right there. Okay. Yeah. In that moment, because they, I mean, first of all, they, you know, I had one, I had one client this past week that said, I, I don't remember the last time I cried, hmm. you know, in front of somebody. I mean, yes, I cry in... You know, I cry at, at home and alone in my, my bed or my bathroom or the tub oh, or the shower. Yeah. You know, or I cry in my car, you know. Right. It, right. But everything's you know. okay. But everything's okay. Yeah, no one knows. But this is the first time in, you know, a couple of years I've cried in front of somebody. And I just kind of went, wow. You know, I, I but I also understand that. I mean, I cry, too. But most of the time, I mean, I, I do cry in front of my partner, um, sometimes lightly in front of my, my children. Um, you, you, you've probably seen me um, cry before. Um, I don't know. I guess I could ask you that question. Um, I think so. But the the, often. the idea is, is that, um, you know, am I willing am I willing just to show up and be that and again, that that vulnerable and that wholeheartedness? So. That experience to to when people are willing to do that and willing to show up and be vulnerable like that is really a changing point for them because they're saying this is actually where I'm at, right? This is actually who I am right now, and I it and just that's like a, a huge step to be able to go okay I'm going to sit in this and I'm going to f- be okay with it, and I, that's to me then you know they they're valuing the therapeutic relationship that's been created and it's like that's the whole reason i mean to me that in that moment that's why we're there right you know all the diagnosis all the medications all the other stuff that becomes part of the the therapeutic you know experience um that that to me really hits it to the point is that i'm i'm able to be there and show up and hold space for someone to be authentic and vulnerable so funny you're saying all this because i feel like it sort of is mirroring like this therapeutic relationship you're kind of describing a conversation that we've already had about the way that we as a country respond to people who like act in a kind of authentic way and how so you're you talked about having um like uh, unconditional positive regard is that yeah. what you said for people yeah. Yeah. like just imagine if like that's how we held each other in the country now i realize that's never going to happen but this whole cancel culture thing we were talking about is like so let's say someone like really bears their soul and like they they're just honest they're vulnerable right and in rather than like allowing them just to express themselves like you do as a therapist in your office we shame people we sweep them under the rug we cancel them we fire them we it's just a totally different, it makes me sad, you yeah. know? And and I do think that there's sort of like, 
a ceiling on the emotional intelligence that like a mob can have. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not trying to like have rose colored glasses here. I I just think that's very human that you get in big groups and there's going to be a little bit of like craziness and a little bit like, yeah, you, I think an individual can be very emotionally intelligent. I think a big group, it really, I think about like the Rajneeshis or there are, there are like groups of people that have gotten together and it seemed like they were going to find that higher plane. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then just like something went wrong. You know, I mean, maybe like the Buddhists or the, like the group of people, maybe the, the, the Tibetan monks have like kind of got it figured out or something. Maybe they really have like reached that higher plane, but, um, we're struggling with this, I think as a country right now, you know, I think we're struggling really to, I mean, I don't think it's like a huge surprise that someone like Brene Brown and talking about vulnerability and, um, became so popular. I think that that is, if I were diagnosing one of the things that's, we struggle with right now, it's that really just kind of, um, respecting people for whom you have differences. I think we're really struggling with that right now, you know, and I hope that that will change. I hope that, you know, when we're doing this podcast in four or five years, that it like, maybe, maybe the tide has started to turn back the other way. I hope that we're reaching our nadir right now of sort of like lack of civility and acrimony and like polarization of the sides. Like, I I wonder how much worse that it can get than it's gotten Mm -hmm. right now. You know, like, does it go much farther than this? Does the dial go much farther? And, and, I don't know how that changes, you know? I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I do think it dovetails with what you're saying about kind of how you treat people, you know, how you try to treat people, you know? And I wonder if um, on the broader scale we could try to treat each other that way. Or maybe that's just totally naive, you know what I mean? To think that as a culture we could treat each other with that respect and dignity, you know? And compassion. Just treat each other with compassion, you know? Um, this idea, I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but a friend of mine that I met while I was traveling had this thing that they read before every meeting at their office. And I can't remember, it was called like the positive imperative. I'm totally butchering that. But essentially what it said was, we're going to treat each other like everyone's doing the best they can in this meeting. And they, and they read it. It was like this little script they read. And, and I could probably, if you gave, I could pull it up on my phone and maybe we can put it in the liner notes later. But essentially it was we're going to talk to each other during the duration of this meeting like each person is doing the best they can yeah you know which is the truth actually it really is but like when do we do that with each other you know well i I think that's when you asked me the question how did i navigate through that conversation over the holidays in that family situation is that is part of it is acknowledging you know where this person is right now that's where i've got to start and they're doing the very best they can in this moment i think that's a great way to look at it yeah yeah, this this idea of vulnerability, um, and with that, I th- I think I have the um, the starting point for our, our next uh, our, our, our next um, session, which uh, we'll we'll do probably get done at this weekend as well. Yes, um, and uh, but I'll I'll let that that be this 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 notion though because I I I think somewhere along the way um, we romanticized. Um, the rise of dystopia huh. and it's almost like it's become sort of like this belief that it's expected because we're not able to come together and and create something different which i think is a is is complete bullshit right. and and be and but it's oh it's better to be cynical which is sort of the soap opera of what the news has kind of turned into a little bit too Right. So, um, that's interesting. Yeah, but the, the, so maybe we'll we'll pick up. We won't start off maybe right into that, but uh, 
we'll we'll work towards it because this this idea and this this thing that's been really um and i talked about this a little bit in my in the ted talk i did last year and I'm, i'm hoping to maybe do another one this year is um acknowledging this this despair that has sort of seeped in to um humanity in in some way because deaths of despair are so much on the rise um and there's sort of this lingering um inability to cope with being uncomfortable like we were talking about earlier um you know not being okay and not i mean we've kind of touched upon all of this today is this why it's difficult for people to show up and be vulnerable and be intimate in relationships and be honest and open and wholehearted. And, and that is sort of the elixir that dissolves all that despair, you know, because then we feel connected and we're, and we don't have the aversion to, um, you know, being part of something and having to be right all the time. Right. And I just feel like that that's sort of like the key. And, and that maybe key is not the best word, but that it's sort of where we need to dissolve this um, attitude that, you know, are we just going to destroy society and culture right. and everything? And, you know, is climate change just going to engulf us and everything's going to be going up in smoke? And, right. you know, no, That's what I meant by passivity. Yeah. Like I, that, that I, I, it's, I said to a friend the other day, like, there's nothing less sexy than um, apathy. There's nothing less sexy than apathy, which is funny because when we were like 14 and 15, that was like the sexiest thing. Right. And it's like, I don't care, man. Oh, that guy's it's so dark. Like, it's dark. <laughs> this. <laughs> what, what is the line from the Big Lebowski? We like what, what the guys are saying, the, um, the nihilists. Like we love nothing, or what do they say? They're just like, <laughs> I don't know. That scene. I feel like that's the scene where the, the nihilists come out and they have some great line. We believe in nothing. We, right? believe, we, we in nothing. believe in nothing. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great scene. Oh my gosh! It's, it and you know, <laughs> there's peace in that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that shot where he's and it's like the perfect, like visual for what we're talking about. Where she says that he's a nihilist and there's just him floating in the pool. Like that's the visual representation of nihilism. Is this guy passed out floating on a floaty in a pool? It's just like such a wonderful. It's perfect. It is totally perfect. Um, I I, I wanted to say one thing for me to close on, um, which I think for the incredulous among you who've made it this far into the podcast, who think that we're just talking pipe dreams and, you know, that this is not possible. um, Yeah, I I would just love to share one story about a someone who was on my trip traveling with me for four months, who was a a very ardent Republican. And I really was a we were able to have the most amazing conversations about politics and Mm -hmm. about common values and and what we wanted to get out of life. And um, and I was really able, even though I struggle to do this with people in my family, sometimes I was able to do this with her. I, I, I really practiced all the principles that you were talking about where I just listened. I just asked her questions about her frustrations and what she thought was wrong with X, Y, or Z and what she wanted to get out of life and what she, you know, all of these things. And I just thought it was so interesting. And, and it was this, this process in finding common ground and we're still really close, you know? Um, but it was just, it was just totally different. And, and maybe this is also, maybe we were able to do that because we were in person 
you know, and we were forced to look at each other in the face. Maybe if her and I had met on Twitter, we would have just been totally horrible to each other. And maybe that's like another thing that, I mean, like the internet is still very new, you know, and Twitter Mm -hmm. is very new. If you think about like the history of humanity, maybe this is just going to be another thing we have to learn how to deal with, because I do think it is really hard to be that mean to someone and to not um, hold their humanity when you're staring at them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is something of the modern age that we're going to have to work out, I think. But, but what I can share is that this thing that we're talking about is possible is that people can be reached. People are reasonable. I, I really believe no one is unreachable, you know, and I just think it's the responsibility, the imperative is on all of us to just sort of, um, do what you are able to do so gracefully. And, and what I am trying to do, which is just to like meet people where they're at and have conversations that are civil and full of respect. And we just need more of that. You know, it's like the opposite of that is happening so much in sort of our digital spaces. And so all of us out there in the world, I think we all just have to like try and have in our little bubble, make that like a peaceful place where we're just like respecting others and being civil and not doing what I do, which is just like when someone disagrees with me, I just <laughs> shout at them. You know what I mean? You like just like with lots of words, but implicitly saying you are wrong you don't know how dumb you are you know what i mean like i'm not free of this i might be like quarter of sound like like sounding professorial and not meaning to but i am guilty of this as well you know i mean i need my own training on like what you said like where do i want to get to in this conversation how can i listen how can i how can we find common ground that kind of stuff um so i just think it's a really beautiful thing to be talking about with where we're at so I, i wanted to be able to share that story that's a good one too that's a good one all right. Well, we'll bring this episode to a close. Um, our goal will be to get another one under the wraps before uh, I head out of here uh, in two days. So Happy to. Sounds yeah. great. All right. Uh, it's still a beautiful day here in Portland. I can't um, wait to get back outside. We're yeah. going to take the pup for a walk. It's going to be a beautiful Saturday afternoon here in I Portland. Just, I'm just like... So this is so incredible. I know. This was not in the forecast, by the way. No, it was not. It said <laughs> rain for 10 days in a row. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure all of you listening are just wondering what we're talking about. But yeah. it is beautiful out there it today. Is. Blue skies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from Portland, we will talk to you again very soon. And we will go out as we usually do with a little Joan Osborne. Until next time. Thanks for having me on.